We come now to the last verses in the book of Judges. This morning I'll be addressing Judges chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. The title of this morning's sermon is The Sorrow for Benjamin, Part 3. The Sorrow for Benjamin, Part 3. You know, we've been going through Judges now for a year. Um, and the time has just flown by for me. Maybe not for you. <laughs> but, uh, but it has gone quickly. Um, and, and I do hope that it has been, it's been profitable. Um, so we've looked at this very stark history of, of the Israelites um, in the time after the conquest of the land of Canaan. And this is up until the time of and just before the time of the kings, the time of the monarchy in Israel. So this, this is an important time. It's like a transition time, if you will, from the wanderings in the, in the, in the wilderness and the entrance into the promised land and the wars of conquest to drive out the wicked Canaanites. And now the Israelites should have been settled in the land. However, because of their own sin and their continual apostasy and their disobedience, the rebellion against the Lord God, things have not gone, gone as we would expect, although this is, of course, no surprise uh, to the Lord. He knew that this was going to happen. And as we come to the end of this book here, and perhaps you're familiar with it and you already know, but if you don't, know the ending, don't be surprised. It doesn't end wrapped up in a nice little bow. It ends very abruptly. And that's purposeful. The sudden ending leaves many issues unresolved and questions left unanswered. And why is that? Why would God give us a book in the Bible that does this or doesn't do this? Probably is a better question. Well, the story is not yet fully told. That's, that's the point that we need to walk away with from the ending of the book of Judges. There is more to come, and there is more that needs to come. That will be very apparent. And as I've mentioned more than once, we're dealing with a genre of biblical writing that's known as historical narrative. And historical narratives, we must keep in mind, can never tell the full story because they are always part of a, of a much larger uh, narrative. They're just a slice out of a, out of a hole. Um, that's W-H-O-L-E, not a hole in the ground. Uh, it's, so maybe this is easier to understand if I present it in a different context. Think if you wanted to sit down and write a narrative. Maybe a historical narrative of our nation, or perhaps a narrative about your own family's history. It, when you do this, you, you start someplace, but there's a history that precedes what you're, what you're writing that must be taken into account. And when you end your narrative, whether it be the country or your family, there is more that's going to occur after that. You cannot cover the whole of a historical narrative. The book of Judges is about a time between two great figures in God's redemptive history. 
Joshua, the great leader of Israel, who brought Israel into the promised land, and David, the great king of Israel, who is yet to come, the one chosen and anointed by the Lord God to establish the royal line through which the Messiah will be coming. And although Saul, of course, was Israel's first king prior to David, Saul, we're told, was chosen by men, not by God. And and the Lord kind of gave Saul to Israel to teach them a lesson, uh, so to speak. But both of these men, Joshua and David I'm speaking of, were what we call types. That is, they're precursors, foreshadows, preparatory models, if you will, for one greater to come. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's greater than Joshua. He would bring his people, us, into the everlasting promised land. He's greater than David. He would assume the royal throne of David as the king of kings, the monarch of all monarchs, the ruler of all creation. And we're also, when we're in Judges, we're between two great, well, excuse me, in our time, we are between two great uh, redemptive acts in in God's history. Um, We live between the two advents of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we look back in history to the time of his glorious first coming, and we look forward in history to his glorious return. So we're in a transition period also, very much like Um, the book of Judges. So we should recognize that. And what's striking about biblical history is how we see parallels, as I just spoke of, with our own time. As we've gone through Judges, we've, I think, made some pretty um, reasonable connections to things that occurred then and the things that we see around us in our world today. Judges seems to really bring this out because the Israelites as a whole seem to go from one mess to to another. They make the same mistakes over and over again, and they they don't seem to learn from these mistakes. And this parallel can bring a sense of unease and discomfort to us, which I, I think is appropriate. We don't read Judges and think, oh, those were the days. We might read the Gospels, and we might read the book of Acts and think that, and think that appropriately, as I imagine living during those times. I don't think we think that when we we read Judges. Nor do we read Judges and see promises clearly spelled out for us that cause us to think, oh, I can't wait for that day to come, because it just seems to just build and crescendo to, to horrible thing, to more horrible thing, to the horriblest thing. And then, boom, it's done. It leaves us wanting. In Judges, just like in our own lives, we must face the dilemma of sin. Sin that is pervasive. Sin that is everywhere. Sin that just won't go away. Sin after sin after sin. Sin that brings brutality, betrayal, and butchery. But the author hints very strongly that there is a way out. And we need to recognize that. 
and I want, and I want us to see that. But the way has not been opened yet during the time of the judges. The one who is needed in Israel and in the world has not yet come. But the writer of Judges is making the argument how desperately he is needed. As we examine the final account in Judges, we find Israel in a dilemma still. We've been dealing with this for a few weeks. And as a recap, in case you haven't been with us, or just to remind everyone where we are, Israel had attacked Yavesh Gilad, an Israelite town in the territory of Gad, Gad, in the Transjordan, across the Jordan River. Um, Because the men of this town had failed to come to the assembly at Mizpah. This is just a pretense for Israel to steal the young women of this town. And then they devote the town to destruction. That, that Hebrew word, harim, which is a declaration of holy war that can only be declared by the Lord God. But here we find men declaring it because it suits their best interests. Then they kill everybody except the young virgins in this illegal holy war. They kidnap them. And they take them off. Verses 13 and 14 that we covered last week in, in uh, Judges chapter 21. I'm going to start with that, kind of lay some more groundwork. Those verses read, Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time. And they gave them, the Benjaminites, the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Yavish Gilad but they were not enough for them. There's an important point here that I want to make right off. Point number one this morning is sin can never fulfill our needs. Sin can never fulfill our needs. The sin of Israel here is inadequate to fulfill their desire. They put to the sword the entire town of Yavish Gilad kidnapping the maidens, only to realize that it is not enough. The great crime was not great enough. Solomon writes of this fact that sin cannot fulfill our needs. In Proverbs 27, verse 20, he writes, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. So what Solomon is saying is here, here is that sin can never be satisfied. Here, in this verse, sin is exemplified by the, the phrase, the eyes of man. Because our sinfulness is often fed and nurtured by what we look at. And such was the origin of sin, in, of the original sin in the garden. In Genesis 3.6, we read about how the woman saw And it was a delight for her eyes, and she took, and she ate, and she gave some to her husband who ate. Just as an aside, it's it's kind of popular in our day and age to say that men alone are visually driven, but God's word shows us that all people are are subject to this, that, that women are not exempt from this visual 
enticement. It's something that we need to recognize. So Solomon, interestingly, compares sin with Sheol and Abaddon. Now, what do these words mean? What, what are they that he's talking about? Well, Sheol, he's talking about the grave or the underworld. It's, it's synonymous in ancient Israelite thinking because you went into the grave and thus you went into the underworld. It was connected. And Abaddon is simply the underworld. It also means destruction. It's appropriate for Solomon to use this, the grave and the underworld, because that's where sin leads. Sin that is not repented for, sin that is not atoned for by the one and only Lord who can atone for them. And just as our sin can never be satisfied, one sin always leads to another. One lie leads to another lie. One theft leads to another theft. One betrayal leads to another betrayal. Sin upon sin upon sin. Just like that, Sheol and Abaddon will never turn anyone away. The grave and the underworld are never going to be full until the Lord declares them full and time is at an end. They are in effect elastic. As many people who die in their sins, unrepentant, Sheol and Abaddon can accept them and want them. So in Judges... Our new, our new passages now, Judges 21, 15 through 25. Let's look at verse 15. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. So verse 15, there's, there's two things going on here that I, that I want us to understand. Number one, it does remind us of, of a truth, that the Lord had a part in what happened to Benjamin. We, we must realize that. We must understand that. There's a purpose for what happened, for what the Lord did. Although the Israelites, the confederacy of the 11 other tribes, attempt to escape responsibility for their sinful excesses by placing the entire blame on Yahweh. Blaming God for human sin is itself sinful. Back to Solomon's Proverbs, Proverbs 19.3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. So in Proverbs, this word folly is synonymous with wickedness. That's, that's what it means. It just does, it doesn't mean, oh, a foolish mistake, although foolishness is connected to it, because the one who follows the path of folly in Proverbs is called a fool. A fool is one who is unrepentant. It's one who is acting wickedly and maintains his or her wickedness and refuses to follow what Proverbs calls the path or the way of righteousness. In other words, sin brings ruin. That's what Solomon's saying. And the sinner angrily blames God for it. We understand this if we think about it. We recognize that we ourselves have done this. I have no doubt that everyone like me has at one point blamed God 
for the foolish sin that's been committed. That God arranged it in such a way. If he hadn't put me here, if he hadn't done this, I wouldn't have done this. It's God's fault. It's exactly what the confederacy of the Israelites are doing. But on the other hand, James, the half-brother of our Lord, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, after Christ's resurrection and ascension, comes to faith because he sees his half-brother is who his half-brother has been saying all along he is. The man that made fun of him, poked fun at him, ridiculed him, now leads the church in Jerusalem. He instructs us on these matters of temptation and trials. This is, this is for the saints. He is writing to the people of Christ. He's writing to believers. In James Chapter 1, verses 12 and 15. He says, Blessed, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. I mean, eternal life is so wonderful that the apostles refer to it as receiving a crown. You know, the crowning glory. This is what we have to look forward to. This crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what, is, what James is saying here is that sinful desires or temptations, and we all experience these sinful desires, and when we yield to them, they're born out as sin. They become sin. And sin, unrepented and unatoned for, brings death. And James is saying that God does not tempt us to sin. God will bring us trials, yes, that is true. We know this. God's word tells us this. We are prepared for it. God prepares us for trials. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us his word uh, to, to, to depend on, to read, to meditate on. Trials are difficulties in our lives that God makes use of to discipline us and to disciple us. There's a purpose for these trials, as difficult as it may be for us to understand when we're going through them. And we've all been through trials, I know, that we think we don't really need this. I, Father God, I understand what, what you want me to know, what you, how you want me to act, and this is just, you know, this is just adding on. This is like piling on. You know, the whistle should have been blown. No more tacklers should be, you know, jumping on me. But God is wise, is he not? And we're often foolish. We're short-sighted. He is not. He has all of eternity in his vision. And there's times like that where we must simply, like Job, cover our mouths and worship him as our Lord, as our God, who is good, who loves us. If we respond to trials by sinning, that is our own doing. That's what James is saying. 
It's not God's. We cannot blame God for this. Do not blame God. Like I said, that is a sin. We're, we're engaging in more sin. There's always a way for us to endure our trial without resorting to sin. It may not be apparent to us initially. It may require counsel of another brother or sister. It may require meditation on God's word. And it certainly, it certainly, without a doubt, requires prayer. Keep in mind, it was the Lord who commanded Israel to continue fighting against Benjamin. So that, that's something we don't want to miss when we, when we think about the excesses of the Israelite confederacy, the things they did that were wicked and evil. They were to fight against Benjamin. And when they wanted to stop their war against Benjamin, it was because they were losing badly. Not because they had compassion on Benjamin. That, this compassion would come later, after, after they had murdered all the civilians and burnt the towns. While Israel claims compassion for Benjamin, they're really speaking of regret. Regret is guilt after sinning. You do something horrible and you regret it. The Lord gives us conviction. The Holy Spirit will give us conviction when we sin. And regret is a good thing in that case. It brings us to repentance. Compassion, though, when we think of compassion, really, that's sympathetic mercy. And maybe, maybe, I'm not going to say there's none of that going on with these 11 tribes, but I, I, I do believe it's mainly regret. It's they've realized the horrible sin that they've done, the predicament they've put all of Israel in. They've basically set up the tribe of Benjamin to be eradicated, to cease to exist. And there's certainly self-interest in that realization. We're going to come to that in a bit. But this, these ideas, these, this brings us to my second point that I want to make, point number two, which is divine justice involves retribution. Divine justice involves retribution. Retribution is a bad, bad word nowadays. But let's examine it from a biblical standpoint. We will, we will define it so we know what we're talking about. We will illustrate it so we understand it better. The entire narrative of Judges really deals with the idea of retribution. Retribution comes from a Latin word meaning to pay back. You've heard of payback, you know? Um, well... That's it. That's retribution. It's a, con- it's a consequence or a conclusion of divine justice as we, as we see it here. I'm not saying all retribution, all payback is divine justice. That's, that's, of course, not true. The principle of retribution is, is often found in the Bible. It's indicated by words such as these. Now, now think, if you heard these words, if you come across these words in the Bible, wrath. Vengeance, punishment, judgment, and hell. Also some words that aren't in favor today in many places. 
Retribution is the judgment of a holy God upon sin. Eventually, it becomes the eternal punishment for the ungodly, unless the sinner turns in faith to Christ. The Lord Jesus takes the payment, the just payment for our sin upon himself. This was the covenant of redemption between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which Paul describes to his fellow preachers, Timothy and Titus, as being the triune God's plan from all eternity. And this is important to realize. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes to Timothy about the gospel plan. He wants to make sure this pastor understands it and that this is you know, part of his preaching. He talks about the gospel, the gospel by the power of God, says Paul, not by man, by God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. We didn't do anything to deserve this. It's undeserved. But because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. An eternal plan, the gospel. Then to Titus, another preacher, he writes in Titus 1, 2 and 3, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He writes about the plan for life everlasting. It connects to the gospel here. Paul tells Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul also talks about the foolishness of preaching. Let me tell you, every preacher realizes the foolishness of his, preacher, of his preaching. Every preacher realizes that standing here as a sinful man who has done the sinful things that we've all done and declared to you the word of God in some eyes would be foolishness. To listen to such a man would be foolishness. You could very easily point out all of my weaknesses and all of my failings through my life and how I should not be up here telling you what God says. And, you, and that, is, that is the foolishness of it, but that is what the Lord God has decreed. And I'm in awe. I, and Pastor Steve, Pastor Mike, I know feel the same way. That we are called to do this thing that we are unworthy of. And I'm sure the men, as they give their communion meditations during the summer, have felt the same. That who am I? To declare these things. But bless the Lord that he allows me to declare the good news to his people. That's a wonderful thing. So we escape divine retribution, which is what we have coming. We've earned, we've earned divine retribution only through Jesus Christ. This eternal plan, the eternal plan of the gospel, the eternal plan of everlasting life for us. Before you were born, before you committed your first sin, God had you in his heart, in his hands, so to speak. And he's never, ever going to let you go. You have that assurance. You have that promise. No matter how dark our times may be in our life, 
no matter what happens around us, no matter what other people tell you. Oh, you think you're so good? I know you did this, this, and this. Yes, I did. But you know what? My Lord is perfect. And he loves me and I love him. God bless. So God promises retribution as divine justice to the sufferers of persecution also. This, this gives us hope. This gives us endurance. Paul writes again in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. He writes to the church in Thessalonica, Since indeed God considers it just to repay, that's retribution, to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus has revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance or retribution for those who do not know God. Now this is not those who do not know God, those who are in ignorance, no. This is, this is a relationship knowing. This is th- those, those who reject God and want nothing to do with him. Those are the ones that do not know God. Paul's not talking about some person he doesn't know in some faraway land that he knows nothing of who's never heard of God. Because God's word tells us what? That the knowledge of God is written on our hearts. So there is no person who does not intellectually, emotionally know God. But that's not Paul's point here. He's talking about those who reject the relationship with God through Jesus Christ and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So knowing and obeying, Paul is linking that here. These people, he says, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Don't lose what Paul started off here in this little excerpt that I, that, I, that, I, that I read to you, what Paul is saying. It's, he's talking about people that are inflicting persecution upon the church of Jesus Christ. This is not ignored by the Lord. We look around us in the world today, we look back in church history at the martyrs that have gone before us, the martyrs that are going now, and the martyrs in the future. And we do not, for a moment, think that God has forgotten them. He has not. There is a purpose behind all of this. It is this assurance of retribution, justice, really, that allows us to be obedient to the Lord God's claim that vengeance is his, he will repay. So it's part of a larger story. It's part of a larger narrative. If we did not have that assurance, how would we especially some of us, how would we be able to just, well, I'm not, I can turn the other cheek or I can love my enemies if we're not given assurance that there is justice in the world? For how can there be justice if there's no repayment for evil? There cannot be. No matter how nicely we want to think of people, no matter how nicely we wish the world was, It is a fallen, sinful world. There is evil in the world, but justice will prevail. And for justice to prevail, there must be repayment for evil. There must be punishment for evil. So we have a choice, don't we? The choice 
that we have taken, that where God has led us to accept the Lord Jesus as our Savior, and He takes the payment, He takes the justice that is coming upon Himself for our sins, or we can just await our own judgment in His court in time eternal. That is not a good choice to make. There is retribution for the brutal attack on the Levite's concubine in this account. Retribution that was appropriate and necessary for the perpetrators. We're told who the perpetrators are, the sons of Belial in Gibeah, the sons of Satan, these evil, evil men. Then the entire tribe of Benjamin as we saw, joins in by protecting these evildoers. They include themselves amongst the guilty. And I must say, we see this time and time again in our day and age, where those who think themselves morally virtuous will defend the guilty. I'm not talking about defense attorneys in a court of law. That is a right we have in this land. But when a person has been lawfully convicted and has been given their due course in our legal system and is awaiting punishment, specifically I'm speaking of capital punishment cases, then we have people that will declare that this punishment cannot be carried out, that it is evil for us to do, to do such a thing. They're doing the same thing that the Benjaminites did with the sons of Satan in Gibeah. They're protecting, they want to protect these evildoers that must face punishment for what they did. But what we're seeing here is, is not just 11 of Israel's tribes being punishing one. It's not the 11 against Benjamin when we look at the whole uh, the whole narrative here, it's about Yahweh, the Lord God, punishing them all. Every tribe carried not only blood guilt for murder in this account, but apostasy. They've all apostatized from the Lord God. Even though they turn to him occasionally, they're spring-loaded back to worship the pagan gods. That's the whole theme that we're seeing in the book of Judges. Now moving on in Judges chapter 21, verses 16 through 18. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So as we've read, Israel has provided 400 kidnapped virgins to the surviving 600 Benjaminites. And those of you that have done bookkeeping and accounting can see there's an imbalance here, right? Um, 200 Benjaminites are not going to get wives. Why didn't the Israelite Confederation conclude, this is good enough, we did as much as we can, oh well, so sorry, too bad. There's nothing more to be done. Let's go home. Verse 17 that I just read makes it clear that what is 
at stake in this crisis over lack of wives is not just survival, but the text says inheritance. That's what they're focusing on. This is what they're worried about, that Benjamin loses its inheritance. This is... This, um, this idea, I think, is difficult for us to grasp because of, of the culture gap that I spoke about last week. This culture is so different from ours. Um, but when we speak of inheritance, we primarily have in mind uh, money, right? Um, a monetary inheritance. Uh, for example, you see the retired couple in the big RV with the bumper sticker says, we are spending our children's inheritance. So yeah, it's the kids', <laughs> it's the kids money, right? And even when the inheritance is real property, such as a home or land, often in the processing the estate, the property is liquidated, and then that's distributed to the beneficiaries um, as, as money, basically as funds. So inheritance to us means money, but that's not what it meant to the Israelites. The Israelites, as sinful as they are, and as many mistakes as they make, sometimes they do think right. They think right because this is their culture. This is how they've been brought up. So they're thinking covenantally. They're not thinking monetarily. Specifically, they're thinking of the Abrahamic covenant and its promised blessings. The blessings of land and descendants. Ancient Israel understood this important concept, which Reformed theology understands. And thankfully, you know, we, we, we see this, and this is what we teach, that the Lord interacts with man through covenants. The covenants are very important. So as I said, Yahweh had promised to bless Abraham with a land and descendants. We see this in Genesis chapter 12 at the beginning. When we get to the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua, every reference to inheritance in there is about the land that had been given to the people by Yahweh. That's what's in view here when they talk about inheritance. They're talking about the land, the blessing of the covenant made with Abraham, realized by the allotments given to each tribe. So wording may be different, but the importance of land as inheritance we see as an example in chapter 18 with the, the Danites. The Danites who um, surrender their allotted land because they cannot drive out the Canaanites for whatever reason. And they go north and they seize a land outside of the allotment. They steal land uh, because they don't want the land that's been given to them. So they... they reject their allotment. In the eventual return at the end of Judges of each clan and each tribe that is, that is mustered out for this war, each of them return to their inheritance. And the Hebrew word that's used in both places, whether it's allotment or inheritance, is the same Hebrew word. So the concept is identical. And verse 17 speaks of this Israelite concern. If Benjamin is only a small remnant, they may not be strong enough to keep their inheritance. That is the land allotted to them by Yahweh. This implies a threat to Benjamin. There's a threat to Benjamin. If there's a threat to Benjamin, there's a threat to all of Israel. 
as Benjamin goes, so goes the rest of the Israel tribes. That, that is the concern of the Confederacy. You know, Benjamin, if you look at a map of the tribal allotments, is right in the heart of everything. If the Canaanites take that, you know, and then they can go, they can go out, they can attack in any direction, um, really. So, so it's, not, it's not this sympathetic mercy to Benjamin that we might think of when we hear about compassion. There's self-interest in this. We've got to protect Benjamin because otherwise we may be next. God had promised to go before Israel and drive the Canaanites out of the land, yet they remain in the land. They remain in the land because of the continual apostasy, the continual sin of Israel. They have, they have forfeited the Lord's assistance, and the Lord has told them this. Now a weakened Benjamin, as I said, is at risk from being driven from the land. The identity of the Israelites as a people blessed by and for Yahweh is deeply connected to the blessing of the land. We must understand that and we must see that. It, it pertains to us. It's not just this interesting oddity in ancient Israelite history. It's the way God is reclaiming territory that has been given, not lost, but has been given over to evil for a time. The Lord God is taking it all back. He's just starting in Canaan, the promised land. And now we have a similar task to take land back. That's the commission, that's the great commission that the Lord gave the apostles to go forth he told them, go into Jerusalem, Samaria, and all the earth, rippling out. It's just like what Israel was concerned of. If we lose the key territory of Benjamin in the heart of it, who knows what's going to happen to the rest of us? Well, before Jesus captured the key territory of Jerusalem with his apostles and went out from there. What has happened? The gospel has spread around the world. It touches every land. That's the good version. Israel was worried about the evil version. So point number three. In our natural state, we are blind to our unrighteousness. In our natural state, that is a sinful state, we are blind to our unrighteousness. This is evident in the way sinful Israel focuses on God's blessings in the midst of their sin. They're sinning to beat the band, but they remember the blessings they're supposed to get. That's kind of odd, isn't it? But it's very human. They expect the blessings of the covenant, the land to continue as they break the Mosaic covenant, the law. The law is given in order to keep, rule, and prosper in the land. God's covenants connect. One flows into another. Moses warned Israel. We read this in Deuteronomy 4, verses 25 and 26. He tells the Israelites, 
If you act corruptly by making a carved image and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. Well, that's exactly what we see going on, isn't it? They were warned. They were told ahead of time. God always warns before he judges. He just doesn't strike out of the blue, so to speak. Oh, we had no idea that we were doing wrong. We should have been told we wouldn't have done this. No, we are told time and time again. The Israelites are told time and time again. And yet we continue in our sin. God warns all people of the consequences of sin. Just as Israel was given repeated warnings of coming judgment through prophets, prophets speaking the word of God, so the Bible speaks the word of God to all people with repeated warnings of coming judgment. And God has called preachers to preach that word of the coming judgment. But like Israel, the unrepentant, in our day and age, expect God to bless them in the midst of their sin while they ignore him in every other respect. <clears throat> Paul writes about this. He writes to the church in Rome, in Romans 3, verses 9 and following. He says, both Jews and Greeks, that is all people, he's talking about all people everywhere, are under sin. He's talking about original sin here. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. Now hear that. No one seeks for God. People that tell you that they're seeking God and they're going on all these weird escapades and trying this, that, and the other thing are running away from the true God. They are not seeking God. How do we know this? Because God tells us we do not seek him. We don't want him. We're rebels. We have a hatred for him in our heart until he changes us. Paul continues. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. This Greek word worthless here means depraved, useless, perverse, damaged, destroyed, spoiled. It's not good, in other words. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Listen to the wicked and die, is what Paul is saying here. Do not listen to wicked people. They use their tongues to deceive there is no fear of God before their eyes. Because, as the author of Judges reminds us again and again, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Paul testifies to this fact in his own life before King Agrippa in the 28th chapter of Acts. Paul tells this marvelous story, and we read about it several times in, in Acts and in the epistles when he, he talks about this, because it's so amazing. He's on his way to Damascus. He's got bench warrants, so to speak, to arrest people. He's been given these warrants by the high council in Jerusalem. He has the authority of law to go into Damascus, another land, and seize people, arrest them, and haul them back. He's like a frontier marshal with a posse going after the bandits, except he's going after Christians here. He's going to bring them back for punishment for blasphemy. Now, we think of, you know, he's going to imprison them. We think, well, you know, they're going to go in prison and, you know, eventually people, no, prison in those days was different. You went to prison 
to await execution or they, you were going to be sent to a salt mine or something of that nature and they would just work you to death. Either they're going to kill you right away or they're going to kill you after they get labor out of you. You're basically not getting out of prison. There's no parole. There's no, well, you, I, I caught a bullet. I'm doing, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing a year in county. No, it doesn't work, doesn't work like that. Mm-mm. But on his way to Jerusalem, he sees a light from heaven brighter than the sun all around him. The Lord could have, that light could have been a lightning bolt hitting him. I mean, he was an enemy of God. He was an enemy of the Lord Jesus. That lightning bolt could have hit him right in the heart, burned him to a crisp, and he would have been dead, and he would have gone to Abaddon, Sheol and Abaddon. But he hears a voice speaking from heaven, speaking in Hebrew, he says. He's giving his details. I mean, this is how we know it's true, that it's a historical account. When you start getting these details, it's like, this isn't made-up stuff. This is how historians know things are accurate. Well, maybe a secular historian wouldn't dare delve into the Bible. But I'm telling you, this is a historical way to judge. And this voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul asks the voice, "Who, who are you? And he was told, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now that there is just so powerful. I could spend a whole morning preaching just on that. Jesus is identifying with you. The believers are being persecuted and Jesus takes that as his own persecution. He is standing with them. He is for them. And what is done against them, against us, is done against the Lord Jesus. That is a stern realization for persecutors to realize. Imagine Saul realizing this. And Jesus says to him, Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. He's going to keep coming back to him, in other words. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. You're going to be persecuted, Paul, is what the Lord's telling him. I'm going to have to rescue you, both from the Jews and from the Greeks. I am sending you to these people to open their eyes. They're blind, what the Lord is saying. They're blind. So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Spiritual blindness. As we know, we know this account, that the Lord strikes Paul blind at this time. And so he's literally blind. His physical eyes become his spiritual, what his spiritual life is, blind to everything. He, does not, he cannot see the light anymore. But the blindness is removed. The scales fall from his eyes This is telling us in a wonderful literary fashion how Saul, now Paul, how his heart is open to the light of Christ, just like his eyes are restored and opened back to light by the mercy of our Lord. So in our text in in Judges, we see the spiritually blind Israelites continue in their dilemma trying to find wives for all 600 Benjaminites so they can keep the inheritance, the land. 
with only 400 couples, so to speak, although, you know, we just have to, I mean, it was horrible what happened to these young girls. They were kidnapped. But they were given to men, they were married, and so there's 400 couples to produce children for the land of Benjamin. They don't think that's going to be enough. They're probably right. Is an additional 200 wives going to make a difference? Maybe it will. But, but how are they going to do that? How are we going to find, they're saying, how are we going to find 200 wives? This is urgent. Now notice what's missing in the text. They make no inquiry of Yahweh. They do not turn to the Lord God and say, Lord, we, we don't know what to do. What shall we do? Guide us in this. No. They, they, let's put our heads together. We'll think this through. We'll come up with it. They're, they're, they're just like, like God doesn't exist for them in this moment. They place no trust in the Lord to provide and protect, do they? It's all man's doing. It's all their works, isn't it? They must defend the land. They must figure out how to provide for wives. And they come up with a scheme, another scheme to solve the problem, a scheme involving another great crime. Verses 19 through 24, so they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Libona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, or else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns, and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance." So Shiloh is in the territory of the tribe of Ephraim. It's an important Israelite city. In verse 19, in the English uh, Standard Version translation, it says, Behold. Well, that's uh, an interjection there. It could be, um, aha, or hey, I got an idea. It's an interjection like, hey, this this just dawned on whoever thought this up. Someone remembered there's an annual festival that they call of Yahweh there, when the maidens come out and dance in the vineyards. Now, this festival doesn't match anything in the Old Testament as far as festivals or feasts for Yahweh God that he has prescribed. This is not something that seems to be orthodox. I think what we've got going on here here is syncretism. We have Israelites that are worshiping Yahweh, so they say, but they're doing it in a pagan manner. They've adopted a pagan ritual to do this. This is an example why we as Reformed Baptists hold to what we call the regulative principle. We, we are to worship the Lord in the way he prescribes and only as he prescribes, not adding uh, to it with, with our whims. Well, I think this would be fun to do, you know, 
let's 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 add dancing. We'll dance up and down the aisles, which is fine if you know if you're my four-year-old granddaughter. Between services, you can dance up and down the aisles, and all of you are welcome to join her between services. But we would not do that during service, would we? And there's churches that do that, but no, we do not. So the survivors of Benjamin who were just about annihilated in ambush, are told to go up to Shiloh and set up an ambush. Do you see the irony here? The ambushed become the ambushers. They are to restore what they lost by ambush with their own ambush. I think we're being pointed out something here, that this is, this is a sin. <laughs> they shouldn't be doing this. Bad things were done to them. They shouldn't do bad things to, people, to, to someone else to make up for it. And another sad piece of irony in this account, which is not something that I would laugh about or make light of, this account begins with the abuse of one young woman and ends, it culminates with the abuse of many young women. It's sad. We, sh- we should not. We cannot lose sight of that. So these girls, when they come out to dance... Each Benjaminite who lacks a woman pounces from hiding and steals himself a girl, then, then runs off. And the Israelites, they tell the Benjaminites to, to take, take the girls and hurry back to your territory before their male relatives, their fathers and their brothers come out to get the girls back and kill you because that's what they're going to do. You kidnap the girl, their family is going to hunt you down. But we'll take care of that. We'll tell the men of Benjamin not to worry Excuse me, tell, the, tell the, um, the men of Shiloh not to worry. We, we, know, we know how to calm them down. This is what is going on. This is what we read in verse 22. Verse 22 is very difficult. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of messy in the way it's written. So I want to explain it to you uh, in, in a way that makes better sense. So Israel has reasoned out an argument here to justify this second kidnapping. Now we see they, they're becoming really good at figuring out their way around stuff, right? Justifying the wrong that they're doing. So in the first part of verse 22, what they're saying is the maidens were not captured in battle. There was no active war going on here. And since there was no active war, then the men of Shiloh have no justification for going to war in retaliation. This was a peaceful kidnapping. (laughs) Not not, not a wartime kidnapping, come on. The second part of verse 22, since the men of Shiloh did not give their daughters, they didn't willingly give their daughters to Benjamin, did they? No, their daughters were kidnapped. That's good, because then the men of Shiloh have not violated the no-wife oath. They're home free. They're not in trouble. They don't have to go to war. They don't have to be punished for violating the oath. They just got to chalk their girls up to a good cause. It's like, well, you would have had to marry them to someone. What the heck? I mean, you don't want them around the house forever, do you? We got husbands for them. We're like a matchmaking service. Kidnappers are us or matchmakers are us. So since there were no grounds for violence, is what the Israelites are arguing on either side, Shiloh should join the rest of Israel in in compassion for Benjamin. 
and accept the abduction of their daughters as a compassionate act. See, don't you feel good about yourself? You are morally virtuous to allow this to occur. This brings me to my last point, point number four. Human justification cannot cover over sin. Human justification cannot cover over sin. After the first sin in Gibeah, each subsequent sin was justified in the minds of the sinners. But having a logical argument as to why you committed a sin does not wash away the sin, does it? Our judgment of sin is itself tainted by sin. Our only reliable guidance is God's word on that matter, on the matter of sin. The closing verse of Judges speaks of our inclination to justify sin. This last verse, verse 25, which we are familiar with because the writer has used it before, and this is what he wraps up the whole account with. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's justifying sin, doing what is right in your own eyes. Whether you think ahead, it's like, okay, I can do that because of, or, oh, look what I did. Well, um, because of this, it's okay that I did that. Justifying yourself in your own eyes. Moses gave Israel a warning from Yahweh about this even before they entered the land. And not only a warning against it, but a prohibition against this very thing that they did in Deuteronomy 12.8. Moses, speaking for the Lord God, says, you shall not do whatever is right in your own eyes. Wow. They were warned. We are warned. We who are believers and those who have yet to believe and those who refuse to believe have been warned. Israel did it anyway. We do it anyway. King Solomon, perhaps thinking back to this time, he writes in Proverbs 21.2, every man, excuse me, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Now friends, don't misunderstand this. Don't take comfort in the fact that, well, God knows my heart and he's going to weigh it. I because many people do. They say, well, you know, God will know my heart. Yes, I've done all of these things, but God knows my heart. Yes, that's the problem, friend. God does know your heart, and he knows how wicked it is. And he's not fooled by your justification. God does not accept good intentions to excuse deliberate and willful sin. He does not even accept good intentions to cover Unintentional sin. We see this all through Leviticus. The Levitical law is about unintentional sin, which requires sacrifice to cover. Every sin requires a sacrifice, a sacrifice of blood. And we have one and only one whose blood is powerful enough to cover our sins, and that's the Lord Jesus. We don't forget that. But Solomon understood, of course, what he was trying to say, because he set the second part of the proverb, which is the weighing of the heart, against the first part, which is thinking that we act rightly. Solomon is saying here, you, in, in, this, this is a form of Hebrew parallelism, Hebrew poetry, that these two ideas are in opposition to one another. 
They don't go together. Even though sinfully, we sinful humans try to make them go together. He's saying, no, this doesn't work. He makes this crystal clear in another proverb. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Because left to our own devices, we don't stay on a straight path. We go crooked. We go all over the place. It is only the Lord that can make our path straight. Solomon continues, be not wise in your own eyes. Don't do what is right in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Solomon here speaks of the king, which the author of Judges tells us is ignored and rejected by Israel. The same king whom many today ignore and reject, the Lord, the Lord God, the Lord Jesus. The Lord is our king. We are his people. May our lives always give testament to that fact, and may our allegiance to our Lord and King never appear to be in doubt. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that we are your people. We pray for those who are not yet your people. Father, we know that your decree is good and that those that that you have elected from before time will be yours. Father, may you use us. We, We offer ourselves to be used in the capacity to bring this word to those that you want sought out and delivered. Father, we give thanks for the assurance of our faith. Your word tells us of that. Even though our minds, our human minds, our human emotions tell us otherwise, we tell ourselves, we think to ourselves, I am not saved. I thought I was, but I'm mistaken. Father, we, we ask for mercy for those amongst us that are in doubt. Father, we we pray that you give them further comfort of the assurance of their salvation, Father. Our hearts break over those who have yet to find this assurance. Father, bless us as we go forth from this place today. Bless my brothers and sisters who are here. Bless my friends that are here who have not yet united to us in Christ. Father, I ask that you watch over them all. I pray for our friends and brethren who are listening on live stream that you may do the same. Father, guide us this coming week. Guide us in obedience. Guide us in our faith. and Guide us to partake as often as we can of the means of grace that you have provided to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.